Our scripture reading today is from the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy scripture. Good morning. It's good to stand before you this morning. Um, My name is Eric Alexson. For those who don't know who I am. Um, My wife and I, uh, my wife Rebecca and I have been a part of this church for four years now, Um, feeling welcomed, feeling loved, feeling fed. And it is, it's an honor to be before you today to preach God's word. Um, When Pastor Charlie asked me to to do this in, in April, um, I was hesitant, to say the least, because, I mean, I, I've never really done this before, um, but, I, but I said yes, trusting in the Lord and trusting Pastor Charlie. Um, and I went through, I've been through a series of emotions, as you think, as you might guess, as I've prepared for this. And um, I felt the full force of that, those emotions, uh, sinful emotions, uh, this week, um, as the this day has drawn near, um, I felt um, unworthy of this. I felt that who am I to be preaching to people older than me who have been believers in Christ decades longer than I have, who know more than me? But God met me in this passage. Um, even yesterday morning, um, the truth is I am unworthy to bring this before you, but God is worthy. And this is, these are his words, and I'm just here to share them with you. So as I, as, as, as I focused on my circumstances this week, I, that's where I focus. I focus on me, my circumstances, and I fell into a depression of sorts. And um, 
I found that putting my hope in my circumstances is uh, fool's gold. It doesn't give me true satisfaction. I said, I basically said, make it go, all, make it go away, God. Then I'll, then I'll find joy, joy in you. My hope was the problem, what I was hoping in. And I was hoping in my circumstances. Um, what brought me back was this passage, two main pillars of hope that brought, me, brought my head up, lifted my head up to look to him. And, and I know being a part of a small congregation like this, um, I know many of you um, beyond surface level and many of us are focusing or dwelling on the circumstances in front of us instead of finding hope in God. And I pray that this message this morning lifts your head up, that you look to the great counselor, and that he brings you true hope. And to expound a little bit of on, on our circumstances, I know some of us are, are still reeling from the loss of unexpected life, and we, we don't find, we're not finding any hope. I know some of us, I know some of our marriages are, seem like they're on pins and needles, and we can't find hope. We're li- some of us want a baby so bad that everything inside us groans for one. And it makes us bitter when we look at others and they have children. Some of us have lost hope and, because we can't kick. We can't kick that pornography addiction. Some of us have lost hope because we have a disability or disease or sickness that there's no promise it will go away. Some of us have lost hope because we don't feel like we have any friends and we feel alone. Some of us have lost hope because there's no promise that we can get our body to look right compared to what we want it to look like. So if I come to you this morning with the encouragement that everything's going to get better in the future, that you just have to wait it out and it'll get better, if I come to you with that encouragement, it's not sure hope. That, will, that is not promised. Basing your hope on circumstances is not sure. And it also makes it impossible to walk by faith in the midst of those trials. That's, we need a better hope. We need a better hope than that. And that's what I'd, lo- I'd, I'd want us to understand this morning, that we do have a better hope. That hope can never fail. Not because of who we are intrinsically, but because of who our God is. So with that, let me pray, and then we'll get to work on Colossians. Heavenly Father, you are a great counselor. In the midst of our circumstances, when we, when we look at ourselves and our, our shortcomings and struggles, it's so easy to fall into despair. When, we'll, when we have Christ, we don't need to be in despair. We can look up and see the one who died for our sins, who has accomplished everything we need for life and peace and joy forever. 
So open our eyes today to see the hope of your gospel. Open our, our hearts to be softened. Take a heart of stone that is resistant to you and take it out and, and put in a heart of flesh that now beats for the glory of your fame. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, Colossians, the book that we're in. Colossians is a letter written by Paul. Paul is addressing the church in Colossae, which is a city um, east of Ephesus. Um, Ephesus was within 100 miles of, of Colossae. And a man named Epaphras came to Christ through Paul's preaching in that city of, of Ephesus, traveled to his home in Colossae, started a church. Now, many people came to Christ through um, the, the, the gospel, the, the hope of the gospel. And, but at the same time, there was false teachers that came in and started to preach a different Jesus. So Epaphras, alarmed, went to Rome where Paul was imprisoned to bring him this news. He brought them first news that, that, they, that the, the, the people in Colossae had faith, great faith in Christ, and that they were growing in their love for all the believers in, in the area and in their church. But he also, after that, must have told them of these false teachers that had come in pro- promoting a counterfeit Jesus and a counterfeit hope. They didn't, let me back up, in the process, these false, false teachers ultimately denied the deity of Christ. Error about the person of Christ opened the door to confusion about the gospel, how we become right with God, how we stay right with God, and how our um, life looks in reflection of the gospel. So various isms infiltrated the church. So none of these false, false teachings were promoted to rival Christ. They were presented alongside of Christ, as if Christ wasn't fully enough. This caused them to direct their hope in other things, distracting them. And when Paul received this report, he was moved to write this letter back to them. Paul uses our passage today to redirect the the church in Colossae from the false hope that the church was believing in to a true hope. So at the beginning of the letter, Paul starts out with a blessing. He thanks God for their faith in Christ and their love for one another. He tells them that he's praying for them always and that he, he is, his prayer is that they continue to grow in their faith in Christ and that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He then starts out, and this is our passage today, he starts in, into a beautiful poetic rendition of a description of Christ and who he is. This, this hope, this, this poetic rendition is what I hope we put our hope in this morning. Notice before we start diving into the text, this is somewhat of a rabbit trail. 
But notice the notice that Paul starts out not with a refutation of error, but with but with a statement of truth. He doesn't directly address their error. He gives them truth. So God grant us wisdom to know to know when to do each in our marriages, in our parenting, at work. So why, why is this Christian hope sure? Okay, here's the, here's the outline. So the outline is, first, God. Verse 15 reveals God to us. Jesus is God. Second, creation. Verses 16 through 20. And third, how this is applied to us. How, how Christ's achievement is applied to us. So we'll take this one at a time. So first, God. Verse, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. This is the incarnation. This is mind-blowing. This is, what this saying, well, what this is not saying is that Jesus is a copy, indicating that, indicating that Jesus is lesser, is a lesser copy of the real thing. That is not what he's saying. Jesus, frankly, is God. The very nature and character of God has been perfectly revealed in Jesus, in a man. He came to earth, God in the flesh. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. In Christ, the invisible attributes, the invisible God is made plain to see, visible. If you want to know, if you want to know what, G, what God is like, all you need to do is open up your Bible and read about Jesus. That's what God is like. It shows us exactly what he is like. Because he is the image of the invisible God. The invisible made visible. Moving forward in the second part of verse 15, this is the first pillar of hope that I want us to, to, to take this morning. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Again, I'll tell you, this is, this is not, this is not a, in plain language for us today. We need to know what this means because this is huge. What it does not mean is that Jesus was the first created being. Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse to teach that Jesus is the first created being by God. But for, for, but for Paul to call Christ a created being would have been to agree with the false teachers that he's rebuking. It says in verse 16 that for by him all things were created. That means all things. All things were created. Jesus was not created. He existed beforehand. What this does mean, what firstborn does mean, is that it is referring to rank. Jesus is the preeminent one. 
He is supreme over all creation. And where I get this is, that it, and this doesn't come out of nowhere, the Old, Te- Old Testament is laced with this, ty- with this type of firstborn language, always referring to rank. In Exodus 4.22, God instructs Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, to declare its special rank of divine favor before him. And then this is, this is a classic one. In Psalms 89.27, God says of David, and I will make him the firstborn. So David, David was not the firstborn in his family. He's referring to rank. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So when Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, he's not claiming that Jesus was the first created. He declares that Jesus is Lord over all creation, over it all. Everything that we see, he's Lord of. It is his. So why is he the firstborn of all creation? So verse 16, verse 16 explains verse 15. Why? For or because, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So I'll take, uh, I'll note two parts of this, of, this, of this verse. Number one, Jesus is the source. He's the source of all creation. For by him all things were created. Who made the world? Who threw the stars into existence? Who spoke the oceans into existence? Who spoke you into existence? Who made you? Jesus did. Nothing exists apart from Jesus making it. And a man named Robert Gramaki commented on this, saying, People should praise him whenever they view the minute complexities of life through a microscope or the vastness of the universe through a telescope. Glory should be attributed to him, not to a series of angelic emanations, to an impersonal mother nature, or into an atheistic principle of evolution. Likewise, referring to, referring to um, where Paul talks about thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, what Paul is talking about here is um, a spiritual realm of of evil authorities. It seems as if the Colossian church had fixated on these types of beings. And not a lot is said about them, but what but what can be implied here is that they had fixated on them and Paul was was telling them, "You're looking too low. You're looking too low. Look above them. Look to Jesus who created these." We look too low too often. We look to our circumstances too often. We need to look up. Look up to Christ, who, who is supreme over all creation. 
Paul said that Jesus created the angels. Even the evil angels aligned by Satan are under his sovereign authority. Praise God. Second, Christ is the goal of creation. So at the end end of 16, he says, Paul says, all things were created through him and for him. This should give us hope. The created order exists for Christ's sake. Whatever exists is for his glory. And that includes us. We exist not for ourselves. We exist to make much of Christ, to bring him the glory. What's the, what is the purpose of our life? What is the chief end of man? Why are we here? We're here to bring him glory. The chief end of man. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Philippians 2, 9 and 11 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 17, and he's before all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul is again referring to the supremacy of Christ. Jesus operates as the pre-existent one. No one can rightly say, no one can, and Arius tried. He said, "There there was once when he was not. That is not true. He was before all things. And in him, and in Christ, all things hold together. This is, this is mind-blowing, that all things hold together through Christ. All things are continuously, are continuously sustained through Jesus. Apart from Jesus... Sustaining everything, all things would fall apart. Why is it that the earth remains close enough to the sun that we don't freeze and far enough from the sun that we don't burn? So scientists agree. It's, 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 a, it's a, common, a common thought that we are on a razor blade of things going dramatically bad from, for life to fall apart. If one... If one proton um, changes into a neutron, things would fall flat. Secular scientists um, chalk this up to to luck. Everything just went right. If you look at the dials on on a big, big wall, every single dial that controls the universe, every single dial, according to them, is, is set just right. It's just lucky that it all happened. But we don't believe that. We don't believe in luck. We believe in Jesus. The reason why your hand is connected to your arm this morning 
when you woke up is because Jesus is sustaining it there. Why is it that flowers keep budding and blooming and fading and falling? Why do we have seasons? Winter, fall, summer, spring. Why can our hope never fail? Let me go back. Let me go back to him holding all things together. Why do we why do we act like we have to hold everything together ourselves? We can't. Jesus is doing it. He's got it. We don't have we don't have to strive to hold our family together. We don't have to strive to hold our emotions together, our our job, our lives. This is why this is why we don't have to worry about our spleen exploding. He's sustaining everything. So why can our hope never fail? Why can a Christian's hope never fail? Because Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of everything, including your faith and your hope. So Christian hope is an objective reality. It is not a wishing. Christian, he created your hope and will sustain your hope until the end. So, first pillar. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's supreme over all all the things that he's made. Second, he's the firstborn from the dead. So in this this second, second part, he shifts from creation to the new creation. Verse 18, And he, being Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. So, when, when Paul speaks of a head, he's talking about the head of a human body. So elsewhere in Scripture, Paul uses different, different phrases to refer to uh, the church. Sometimes he refers to the body, and each part has an equal part in sustaining. Here is not the case. Here he refers to the head as the part where... Um, the part of the head that exercises um, authority over the rest of the body. He's teaching that the church is a living organism and not a dead organization. He's saying that the head is described as a central is central in relation to his people. His headship po- points to a close and personal relationship with us and them, which he rules over his people in a way that the head of a body exercises influences over it. It also points to our total dependence on Christ for life and power. So, when he refers to the body, he's talking about the church. That's us. Not, he's not referring to physical churches. What he's referring to is Christ's blood-bought people He's referring to a heavenly assembly gathered around Christ. So as we go about our daily tasks, we are a part of the church, a heavenly assembly in the spiritual realms. So remember this. Let this give you hope 
that we have fellowship with Christ and fellowship, therefore fellowship with one another. Christ is the beginning. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That in everything he may be, he might be preeminent. So this is another strain. This is the uh, the second pillar of hope that we can rest on. So what does this mean? We need to get this right. The firstborn from the dead. Christ obviously wasn't the firstborn. Wasn't the first to rise from the dead. Christ Himself raised three people. So it can't mean that unless we get the unless we're getting the term um, resurrection wrong. Why why should this give us hope though? That's the question. What does this mean? Firstborn from the dead. This means that Christ. Christ is the first to be resurrected and stay alive. And we will follow him in that same way. That should give us hope. 1 Corinthians 15.20 gives us a a peek into what this means. Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. So Christ is the first fruits of this. He's the firstborn from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But as, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, first fruits Christ. Then at the coming of the age, those who belong to Christ. We have hope. We have an unshakable hope. Christians have an unshakable hope that we will be resurrected like Christ. What can man do to us? Why do we fear? What are you going to do? Kill us? Christ will raise us. Paul describes Jesus as the beginning of a new humanity, the beginning of the resurrection age. And his blood-bought people will also be resurrected with him. Praise God. And just like in creation, Jesus is supreme over the resurrection. He's the first fruits. So in both the old creation and the new creation, Christ is supreme over all things. Moving on. For in him, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So this is, this is the incarnation again. God, God dwelt in the flesh. We will never be able to understand this fully. God, who can hold all of the oceans, the billions of gallons of water in his palms, he made the universe with his fingers. He created everything by his words. That God became a man. And it's been described as if, the, the incarnation described as in, all of the ocean, all of the ocean was put into a styrofoam, styrofoam cup. And not one drop of the ocean is outside of that cup. 
That's the incarnation. <laughs> how are we supposed to how are we supposed to understand? If we move forward one chapter in Colossians, it says that it says in verse 9, for in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, fully God, fully man. Together. Amazing. This is why Christ is preeminent over all things. And through Christ and through him, he reconciled to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this is the climax. This is the climax of the passage. Christ, through the cross, has reconciled, reconciled, bringing back to a former state of harmony. He has reconciled everything that he has made, and he has put all things back into order. Peace has been restored, and this includes evil. Principalities and powers still exist right now, but have no power against us Christians. They can't, they can't ultimately send us to hell. We cannot be harmed because Christ is, again, supreme. Talk about hope. The firstborn from the dead has brought peace to all creation through the blood of his cross. We who, have, who are in Christ have nothing more to fear. We will be resurrected from the dead and we will be with him forever. And on a side note, it's easy to look at this passage and, and, and see something else that may not be true. It says, through him to reconcile to himself all things. That's true, but what, this, what that does not mean is that all people will eventually come to a glad submission of Christ, to Christ. There will be those who gladly bow to Christ and those who will be forced to bow, but all will bow. One side will willingly bow, one side unwillingly. This is what it means that when, when Paul says he reconciles to himself all things. Either way, reconciliation has been achieved. He is now Lord over all. He's in complete control. Nothing is rogue. Now, before I move on, a question must be asked. We have to ask a very important question that Paul has given us a glimpse into. And the question is, what is the, why, why, what is the need for reconciliation? Why does the creation, all creation, need reconciliation? What went wrong? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why something so powerful? Why did that need to happen? Why did God have to come to earth and die on the cross? Well, we see that in Genesis 3. We see how a relationship was broken between God and man. See, God created everything good and in harmony and gave Adam and Eve abundantly everything they needed Everything and more. They had everything. They had perfect harmony with the Lord, with God. 
perfect relationship. They had all the food. They had all the pleasures. But they were deceived. Adam Adam was deceived by his desires and lost trust in God and his word and was enticed by his own sin. Him and his wife sinned together. And because of that sin, Romans 5.19 says, through, that, through Adam's one trespass in Genesis 3, this led to condemnation for all men. We come into this world condemned before God. We come out of the womb dead in our sins. Which means we have no love for God and his word, but rather we, we, we hate God and his law. We're not neutral. No one is neutral in regards to God and his law. We came out cheating to get ahead. This, is, this came natural. We lied to our friends. We lusted. We gossiped. This is by nature. We are angry, anxious, greedy for money. We hold that money tightly in our fist instead of being open-handed. We avoid responsibility. We didn't care for the widow and the orphan, but only for ourselves. But the greatest sin from which all of these sins derived from was our unbelief. The Christ of verses 15 through 19, the unbelief in that Christ, the Christ that is over all things, the one whom all things exist and holds together. We hated him because we thought we deserved his place. There was an all-out war on Christ on our behalf and his rule. Even though Christ had already achieved lordship over the cross, this was a battle that was already won. The, the, the position of Lord has, had already been taken. This is the human predicament, though. Sin has severed our relationship and, severed, and separated us from God and put us under his condemnation and wrath. This is why not just creation, but in particular us humans, need Reconciliation. And that's what the cross did. The cross achieves for us what is impossible any other way. Since we come into this world not neutral, we don't come, we don't come into this world, maybe we might go one way, maybe the other. We come in, no, we come in hostile to God. And that's why, that's why we need the cross. That's why we need reconciliation. Verse 21 explains our identity before faith in Christ. And for those of us who are among us that don't believe right now, this is you. This is you. We were alienated and hostile in mind, meaning we were estranged from God. Ephesians 2.12 says we were separated from Christ because of our sin. We were also hostile in mind. Romans 8.7 for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
We had a mind that would not submit to God's law. Therefore, we did evil and corrupt deeds. After hearing of Christ's preeminence in the previous verses, it is only fitting that we know up against that backdrop that we deserve punishment in the greatest order for violating his lordship. This is wickedness. Hell, eternity, and conscious agony is what we deserve. Separation from God completely. But, but, but praise God that the story doesn't end there. He has now, he has now, verse 23, those three words blow out like a trumpet. It's a blast. How precious these three words are. See this in Ephesians, but God. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You see, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead, God in a human body died. God died. God became a man and died. And it achieved something. It achieved reconciliation between God and us. Jesus took the punishment for our hostility and evil deeds towards us on the cross, towards God on the cross. And in return, and in return, we got the credit for Jesus' perfect life. God looked upon Christ and punished our sin. God looked upon us and gave us Christ's righteousness, his perfect life. This is why it's so important that God had to become a man, because no human stained by sin could live a life that could transfer to another. If it could, it wouldn't achieve anything. We need perfection. Only God can give us that. But this reconciliation has an aim. We see that, the, we see that aim in, at the end of verse 22. That aim is to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's mega grace. Mega love. God looked upon our sin and said, I want that person in my family. And he sent his, cross, his son to the cross to achieve that. Believer in Christ, on the last day, you will stand before God, the Father, without stain or fault. You'll be forgiven and rec- you are forgiven and reconciled. Make this your hope, my family. But Paul doesn't end there. He says, this is true for you, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. If it is true that believers will continue 
to the end, and it is true, believers must continue to the end. Like a home built on a solid foundation in a storm, it will endure to the end. We, we must endure to the end. We must work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. We must not shift from this gospel that Paul is preaching in Colossians. We must be steadfast in that. We must hold to Christ, look to Christ and his cross as the preeminent one over creation and over the new creation. God in the flesh. We need to continue to believe what Christ has achieved for us. This gives us hope. This lifts our head up. It is, it is important to, to note, too, Paul's tone in this passage. It has been one of encouragement all the way up until here, and it's easy to think that this was more of a warning than an encouragement. And I don't, and I don't think Paul has that in mind. I think he has an encouragement in mind. His tone in, in this passage was one of confidence that they will endure, not because of who they are or we are, but because of Christ, of what he achieved. No doubt is expressed by Paul here, but faithfulness, but, but note this, faithfulness to the end is essential. We cannot treat Christ and his cross as a vaccine. It is not a one-time shot and then we're good. We, we don't have a ticket in our back pocket. This is an ongoing striving to work out our salvation with fear of the Lord and trembling before him knowing where we came from in our sin and what God has done on our behalf through Christ. So, as I come to, the, come to a conclusion here, I'll speak to the believers here in the room. Believers in Christ, make Jesus in all that he is your hope. Make him your hope today, and then when tomorrow comes, make him your hope. And then the next day, Make him your hope. Why? Because he's worthy of it. He's supreme over all creation that he made. He's not just your savior. He's your sustainer. He's not just a one-time savior and then just leaves us to our own. He's working intimately with us to sustain our faith to the end. Because he's supreme over the creation that he's made, he's supreme over his new creation, his people, and your biggest problem, your former standing before God has been gloriously changed through the blood of the cross. Your hope is an objective reality, regardless of how you feel in your circumstances. May your feelings, my prayer has been, may our feelings align with the truth of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. To those who have yet to believe, a friend of mine calls folks that are, have yet to believe pre-Christians because he, he hopes, he has, just has this great hope that those who don't believe will come. To those who have not yet trusted Jesus as your Savior, without faith in this supreme Christ, 
without making Jesus your treasure, without turning from your sins, this type of, tr- this type of hope is not true for you. It is not an objective reality. Your hope is an expectation of agony and wrath. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus came to die that, so that all who believe in him would have eternal life. It takes faith. If God is tugging on your heart right now, latch onto him in faith. Make him your only hope. It doesn't take a list of deeds, good things to become right with God. Jesus has already achieved that for you. He's done the work. You could say you've been saved by works. Jesus works, not your own. It's just faith. Just faith. Trust Jesus as your only hope this morning, I plead with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great. You are great and, and glorious and worthy of all praise for these things. How are we to understand everything? We can't. But thank you so much for giving us a glimpse of who your son is and what he has achieved for us on the cross. Go with us this week as we encounter various trials. They will come for us. But be a great counselor to us and lift our head to see Christ, the risen and resurrected Christ. Give us that hope this week. In Jesus' name, amen.